It is good to be able to assemble in the comfort and, yea, the blessedness of a place like this one that God has allowed us to enjoy and to have, the opportunity to assemble in tranquility and serenity and peace, and to do so not for the purpose of just simply a benefit to ourselves, but first and foremost to exalt and worship and magnify God. And, of course, you and I will be blessed as a result of that activity. Tonight, we're going to give some thought to an Old Testament king a gentleman named Hezekiah. And so, if you would, be turning to 2 Kings chapter 20. Brother Vestal read the first seven verses of that chapter a moment ago, and we'll take up a more thorough consideration of that with some implications and some applications to your life as well as to mine. I suppose if we merely mention the name Hezekiah, probably that which first comes to mind is the very matter that was read to us about how that his life was lengthened, how that upon his urgent and earnest and sincere prayer to God, God granted him an additional number of years, 15 to be exact. And tonight, as you and I study the last 15 years of his life, remember 15 years he may well not utterly have had were it not for his prayer and God's answer. This opening slide is at least some initial considerations, matters that will set us on our course for the study of this Sunday evening. There's no question all of us, not only by way of experience, but by way of the decree of the Word of God, would be quick to affirm the brevity of life, even at its lengthiest. In this flesh, it is still so brief. How often in the Bible do we find comparisons like Job 14.1? It's like a shadow. We each know that as the sun appears in its movement across the sky, really it's the rotation of earth, of course, but we know that a given shadow appears to move, and it does so. It appears so very quickly. Later, we notice in Psalm 39, 5, that the length of life is likened unto a handbreadth. Think how wide that is. In comparison to much longer elements of measure, in comparison to much longer periods in time, and yet a handbreadth, the typical length of your life and mine. Maybe finally, as we recollect those famous phrases in James chapter 4, verses 14 and following, how that on that occasion the breadth, the length, if you please, of life is likened unto a vapor that appeareth for a little while, a little time, and then vanisheth away. All of those and yea, additional ones that might have been listed remind us so very well of indeed the shortness, the brevity of it. Tonight, think about Hezekiah. Have you ever wondered how old was he when he died? How many years did Hezekiah have? We know it was 15 beyond what he would have had prior to that. How did he use the time that he did have? Those will be some questions we will not only ask, but attempt to consider in some detail as our study proceeds this evening. Just as surely as death is a proclaimed certainty in the Bible... Hebrews 9.27 affirms it is an appointment that we cannot avoid. Neither can we sidestep it. But surely the certainty of it is proclaimed in so many ways and in so many very memorable passages. With those thoughts as a background, let's study about the death of Hezekiah. What about the last 15 years of his life? Could I ask you to contemplate for a moment? I realize none of us know the moment of our death. We don't know that it's going to be tomorrow or 10 years from now, 25 years from now. None of us have been given that information. 
may I ask, what about the last 15 years, whatever particular amount that might be? Well, let's study about Hezekiah. What about the way he used it? What about the direction he took in his life? Let's begin all of that, of course, by giving some thought to what led up to the last 15 years of his life. What, in fact, brought us to the scene of the lesson text that we have read earlier already tonight. I might ask that we do so by beginning to appreciate this. As we study the Old Testament kings, we appreciate that following the time of the division of the kingdom. That southern kingdom of Judah had some 20 kings. I'll say 20 in as much as they were appointed by God. There was another, but she, in fact, usurped the throne. God never appointed her. She was that wicked Athaliah. And so we'll make the affirmation some 20 kings. Some of them were good. That is to say, their heart was directed toward an attempt to please the God of heaven. The majority of them were not good. More of them were on the side of evil. They were on the side of failure and rebellion against God. Perhaps it's in light of that we come to a gentleman named Ahaz. Ahaz was the 11th of those kings of Judah. The Bible is very clear in affirming before us he did not do what was right in the sight of God. And so that testimony will live throughout all of the ages concerning this man. It is forever written in the Word of God. He made poor choices. He didn't pursue the things of God as he ought to have done. As you and I give thought to Ahaz, we now come to the gentleman of our primary study tonight. Ahaz had a child, a boy. His name was Hezekiah. As you can see near the top of that slide, when Ahaz died, his son Hezekiah came to the throne, and he was the next king of Judah. You may notice with me that Hezekiah was the age of 25 when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years. And so you've already helped me answer a question we raised earlier. Hezekiah died at age 54. And so at the last 15 years of his life, that incident you and I studied tonight, he was 39 when that happened. 39, when God said, set your house in order, you're going to die and not live. At that age of 39, God granted him 15 additional years. As you can begin to notice on this slide, let's give some thought to this life of the man prior to that age of 39. We are given a rather glowing description of him. Glowing in the sense that he did right in the sight of the Lord, borrowing the explicit words of 2 Chronicles 29.2. He did what was right, opposite to his daddy, opposite to the one who was his forebear. Not only did he do what was right, look at the next statement. He made an attempt to begin to repair the temple. You may pause for a moment and appreciate that in fact that temple was in need of repair. Remember, his dad was not a supporter of what was going on at the temple. He was an idolatrous man. Ahaz and even some of the kings that preceded him, the temple had fallen into disrepair. The temple had fallen into a bit of deterioration, and Hezekiah saw it as vital, as essential to repair it, to bring it back to the central place that the God of heaven wished it to occupy. Maybe in light of that, that brings us to notice 2 Chronicles 29, verses 4 and following. The third comment, Hezekiah led the cleansing of that temple. It's not that he gave commandment for others to cleanse it. He was vitally involved in it. 
as I mentioned, we so far can't help but be a bit impressed with Hezekiah. He wasn't by any means an old man. He began the reign at 25, and yet early in that reign, he took it upon himself with urgency, with seriousness, with dedication to repair that temple because God wanted it done. The last few comments. He sought to destroy idolatry, that which his father and others had encouraged, that which even his own forebears had demanded. He saw it, however, as important to destroy it. Finally, notice how the text says in 2 Kings 18 that Hezekiah trusted in God and he followed God. He, in fact, followed in the footsteps of David, at least in that regard, because David sought to pursue the things of God, and so too did Hezekiah. It is with that we close that slide. When that temple was repaired, Hezekiah led an occasion of rededication. Sacrifices were offered, the Passover was kept and celebrated. It was a momentous event in the history of Israel. For years they had not directed themselves toward the keeping of that law of Moses as they ought to have. And Hezekiah led a reform to bring them back to that particular occurrence and occasion. And so it is. I believe we would fairly say, as far as the biblical record would indicate, it was a pretty good period of 14 years. The impetus of his life, one who was interested in serving God... But as you and I know, something now very traumatic occurred. And it takes us back to the text that was read a moment ago. In 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 1-7, through 7, and interestingly enough, this, that scenario is echoed practically verbatim in Isaiah 38, beginning in verse 1. Two accounts of identically the same thing. This particular slide sets it before us. Here he was, Hezekiah, the age of 39, and God commissioned the prophet Isaiah to come before him and said, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Now, Hezekiah had become ill. A boil had appeared on his body. We aren't given any further information about that boil, where it was located, the characteristics and additional features of it, but suffice it to say it was serious. Suffice it to say, it captured Hezekiah's attention and the prophet was sent to him by the very words of heaven. And Isaiah said, set your house in order. Consider with me just for a moment the stunning kind of reaction it would be to hear those words. We each, I think, appreciate the livelihood that comes with life in the flesh. We are not morbid in our desire to just go out and make sure to end our life with, with rapidity and soonness. We enjoy the blessings and things that God gives us, and so too did Hezekiah. But Hezekiah, you're going to die. Now, in light of that, look at some of the statements. The, declarative, the declarative character of it. Set your house in order. You've got apparently but a few days left, Hezekiah. Did you notice how Hezekiah reacted? Verse number 2, it says, Then, notice the adverb, Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord. Hezekiah turned his attention in earnestness and in tremendous aspect of prayer to that God whom he had served in recent years. 
he turned his face to the wall. Now, we also know he shed bitter tears on that occasion. Would you and I be brought to tears if a doctor or some other professional shared with us, you have the most serious and aggressive kind of cancer known to man. At best, I can give you three months. How would you and I react? Hezekiah received news not unlike that. With that, you may notice he earnestly prayed, and the God of heaven answered like this. Would you note with me again the wording of verses 3 and 4? I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. You can imagine as he prayed, tears streaming down his face. You can imagine the overwhelmed and overcome with emotion at the news that Isaiah had delivered him. Verse number 4 says, It came to pass, afore Isaiah was gone out into the middle court, Isaiah didn't even make it back to his home before the God of heaven commissioned him again to share some updated news with King Hezekiah. It went like this. Verse number 5, Turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee. On the third day thou shalt go up into the house of the Lord. Three days, Hezekiah, and you will be able to attend worship service. You'll be able to go to the temple that you have overseen in its repair. You shall be able to do that which is the greatest desire of your heart. I've seen your tears. I've heard your prayer. Not only that, verse number 6 goes on to say this. And I, that's God, will add unto thy days 15 years. I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. As you and I reflect on the fullness of that wonderful message, consider how his heart must have been buoyed, how excited he must have been at some of those final statements. I'm going to grant your empire due to victory over the mighty Assyrians. That's one of the things that was troubling Hezekiah, you see. There was a powerful Assyrian army not far in the distance. How was Jerusalem going to defend themselves against such a mighty army as that? Not only was that a concern to Hezekiah, of course, this message of his own, of his own health. God addressed all of that. Fifteen additional years. As you and I come near the bottom of that slide... Again, our question that we have asked ourselves already, how did Hezekiah use that 15 years God gave him? Did he use it wisely? Did he use it with proper motivation, proper incentive, proper direction? Did he use it in overwhelming service to the God who had so richly granted him that time? The opposite side of that coin, or did he waste it? Did he use it unwisely? Did he use it with foolishness? Did he use it with misguided direction? As you come to the bottom of that slide, I would invite you to notice, and if you'd like to make notes in your Bible, maybe in 2 Kings 20 you could make a note to direct you to read 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 25. It's a very telling passage. Remember, it concerns Hezekiah in the final 15 years of his life. This is what the inspired writer tells us. 
I'm going to begin reading in verse 24. It says, In those days Hezekiah was sick to the death and prayed unto the Lord, and he spake unto him, and he gave him a sign. So this is the chronicler's description of this same event. Hezekiah was sick, but God gave him a sign. And you and I learn later that sign was the day was lengthened by some 40 minutes. Ten degrees and the sundial went backward. But now notice verse 25. But Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. We aren't left to wonder. The inspired writer tells us he didn't use that additional 15 years nearly as wisely as he could. The text says he rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him. Can you believe it? After God said, I've seen your tears and I've heard your prayer, he turned around and proceeded to misuse the very additional 15 years God gave him. We're going to devote the remainder of our lesson tonight to asking, what if you or I were in that position? How would we use that time if we had it? Perhaps it's in light of that. Let's turn the slide and proceed to make some observations, some lessons, if you please, some applications directed to you and to me. We'll not make many of these, but I believe each one of them, and we'll all agree, are very telling, very compelling, very powerful messages from the Word of God. Our first lesson begins like this. I believe each of us, in so many ways, are excited about life in the flesh. We appreciate the blessings, the potential, the possibility, and the glory that comes with our station living in this flesh. We love this life. And there isn't anything unbiblical about that. Don't we read in 1 Peter 3, verses 11 and following, For he that would love life and see good days... It's not sinful to appreciate the blessing that comes with life in this flesh and to, in fact, be excited about it. But might we quickly note this. Longer life in this flesh might not be a good thing, might not be a great blessing. For after all, wouldn't we all be quick to say, a shorter life that's lived in faith is better than a longer one that's lived unfaithful. The Bible overwhelmingly teaches that, doesn't it? A life that's shorter but is directed and dictated toward that which is pleasing to God and one who dies in the faith that way is far better off than one who may have lived a century or more but who is unfaithful. Maybe some examples. Think about a number of those Bible characters who maybe were only here in the flesh for a little while, at least relatively speaking. Their life was short at least compared to many others. Maybe the first example is one that leaps off the page early in the book of Genesis. Cain was a brother to Abel. And yet we remember Cain rose up and killed his brother. We don't know how old Abel was when he was murdered. But suffice it to say, his life was snuffed out. He had nearly reached the age. And remember, many of those early patriarchs of the Bible lived to a vast old age. Like Adam, his dad lived to be 930. Abel never came anywhere close to that. He died so young. 
But isn't it a fantastic thing to read in Hebrews chapter 11 that the blood of Abel still cries out and speaks in terms of faithfulness. Abel directed his worship as God commanded, and for that he will forever be a testimony to faithful worship, will he not? That's a beautiful thought, isn't it? Though he died young, his blood still cries out about the power of proper service to God. What about others who died young in the Bible? I would ask you to think, as you and I consider these short and these long lives, the next one may at first sight may not seem like a good example. What about Enoch? I freely confess Enoch lived to be 365 years old, but may I ask, what about those that were just before and just after him? What about Jared, Methuselah, Canaan? Mahalalel and the others mentioned in Genesis chapter 5. Jared lived to be 962 years old. Methuselah, 969. Mahalalel, 912 and others. Canaan, or rather Enoch, only 365. He died so much younger. Or maybe I should say that differently. He was translated. God took him. Notice, though, he left as a powerful, remarkable character of one who was faithful. His life, though short, still stands as a powerful hallmark to truthfulness and proper directed service toward God. What about Jesus? He only lived about 34 years in the flesh. 34 years. And yet, what a hallmark to obedience he sets before us inasmuch as he died without ever committing sin. Having mentioned those three who died so young, what about others in the Bible who perhaps lived a long life? We've already listed some. What about Methuselah? As far as the Bible tells us, the longest living man in the flesh of which we have any record. 969 years. May I ask, what do you know about him besides that? This much we also know, he died the year of the flood. Did he die because of the flood waters? If so, that he wasn't saved. He was not faithful to God, despite the fact he lived 969 years. I suppose we can hope he died in, by natural causes earlier that year of the flood, but we don't know for sure. Perhaps in light of that, we can say just large numbers of years in the final scheme of eternity is not necessarily a good thing. Perhaps we can remember... Others, though, who did live a long time in the flesh, but who lived it with such grace and who lived it with such devotion. What about Daniel? Here was one who himself was taken off into captivity at such a tender young age, but yet he was a powerful prophet and servant to God throughout the years of the captivity. And as the Dan book of Daniel tells us, he was over age 90 by the time he died. What about Moses? One who had such a difficult task to lead and challenge the children of Israel. Age 120 when he died, Deuteronomy 34 tells us. Again, might we say, you and I should desire, of course, to love life, but only in regard to faithfulness and proper directed service to God. That's what will make life rich and rewarding as it comes to its close here and transitions to the one afterward. What about another lesson? In the second place, did you notice as we discussed Hezekiah earlier, 
the track record of his forebears in most instances was not terribly good. His father Ahaz, his granddad Jotham, others, of course, had often made very poor choices of disobedience. Some of them even openly encouraged idolatry. Some of them, believe it or not, even stepped so far as to offer children in sacrifice to these idolatrous gods. Hezekiah knew better. Despite what dad had done, Hezekiah destroyed idolatry. May I pause and ask, would you and I have enough courage, enough conviction to go against what dad teaches? We love our fathers, but we have to love God more. We love our fathers, but we have to love the Lord Jesus Christ more. And if dad's wrong, may we try to encourage him, teach him, help him, assist him. But may we not follow him just because he's dad. That takes a lot of courage though, doesn't it? We have to give Hezekiah credit on that account, do we not? Surely in light of that, you'll notice a number of other passages that set before not only the Old Testament people, but us as well. What does the Lord require of the old man but to love mercy, to do justly, and to walk humbly with thy God? Micah 6 verse 8. Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. Verse 10 of Revelation 2. Isn't it true that God demands of us faithfulness? Faithfulness to Him, not necessarily to Dad or Granddad or even Great Granddad. As much as we respect them, may we always respect God more. Hezekiah sets that idea before us, and that immediately brings us to a third lesson. Surrounding the issue of prayer, each of us so often recollect and consider the matter of prayer. We make prayer a vital, ongoing part of life, and that we should. We're told to pray without ceasing in the words of 1 Thessalonians 5.17. The Lord Jesus Himself admonished us to pray always that we might not faint, Luke 18.1. When his own disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. He didn't put them off, but rather he did it on that occasion and gave to them the words of that model prayer. Isn't it true that on this occasion, though, we learned something else? How did God answer Hezekiah's prayer? Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed. And as he cried, these bitter tears of difficulty and emotion... Again, Isaiah, in a very short order, was told, You go back and give him some more news. I have heard your prayer. Doesn't that excite you and me? To know that when we pray, those prayers don't stop at the ceiling of the building. They don't even stop at the level of the clouds. God says, I heard your prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Entire kingdoms can be motivated and moved by you and I as we pray to God. The hearts and discourses of the lives of individuals can be altered as we pray to God. Hearts that are hard and likened into an adamant stone might be motivated but could become tender as the God of heaven works in circumstances and situations. God answers prayer. But He doesn't answer everybody's prayer. He's only promised to answer the prayers of His children. John 9, 31 tells us, God heareth not sinners. David even understood that in Psalm 68. Aren't we told in the New Testament that the 
eyes of the Lord are in every place, and His ears are open unto their prayers. Whose prayers? His children. If you and I aren't a child of God, a faithful child of God, we have no reason to expect that God will hear our prayers and answer them. We know that He's always aware of whatever takes place in this universe and anywhere else, but He's only promised to be in responsive consideration toward those prayers that are those of His children. Oh, how much we need to be a faithful child of God. Because it's then that those statements, the effectual, fervent prayer of who? A righteous man availeth much. You'll notice as we continue on with that, that statement we made and noted in 1 Peter 3.12, that's a quotation from Psalm 34 verse 15. Whether in the Old Testament or in the New, aren't we excited to give thought to individuals like Hezekiah and to what happens when we pray? Along that line, isn't it rather fascinating that the occasion that prompted Hezekiah's prayer on this occasion was this announcement of his own death. There is a door, of course, through which you and I are also going to walk if God delays the coming of His Son. It is that door of death, and it's a time, it's a transition filled with, of course, a great deal of mental emotion, agitation, but you know, for the child of God, what a peaceful transition it can be. For the child of God, what a great element and sense of tranquility is able to be appreciated. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, Philippians 1.21. Aren't we also reminded that, he said, in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, I have fought a good fight, I finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of life which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. Paul wasn't being arrogant. He was being confident. You and I as children of God can be confident even as that moment of death approaches. But we surely need to be faithful. There's another lesson, of course, that I wish just to consider, and it's the very one that has been the centerpiece of our lesson. Why don't we close our lessons with it? How did Hezekiah use the last 15 years he was given? At age 39, God said, here are 15 additional years. Perhaps one might wonder with an overwhelming sense of joy, an overwhelming sense of gratitude, an overwhelming sense of thankfulness. Maybe he would have used those years even better than the previous 14 that seemingly had been pretty good. And yet, as we just noticed in 2 Chronicles 32, he rendered not to the benefit God had given him. He proceeded to waste at least a vast part of those 15 years. I would consider that one of the saddest tragedies in all the life of Hezekiah. And I believe we'd all agree. Let's put some of these details with it. I would, in fact, invite us to notice some of the particulars of Hezekiah. He was told, set your house in order or you're going to die and not live. But then before that episode was concluded, given 15 more years. What happened in some of those 15 years? Remember, he was age 39 when it occurred. There was a child born to Hezekiah three years later when he was 42. It was a boy. He would become the next king of Judah. 
He was the most wicked king that Israel ever had. Now remember, that boy was molded. He was shaped. He was motivated on his way for 13 years before Hezekiah died. Clearly, Hezekiah had a significant influence upon him. And yet, that boy, that son, whose name was Manasseh, reigned for 55 years as king over Judah. And again, arguably, the most wicked, the most evil, the most idolatrous, the most... Or the person who refused to seek God, perhaps above all the others. And he was the son of Hezekiah. As you give thought to the influence that Hezekiah had, remember the text said he rendered not. He became prideful and arrogant. He allowed these matters, it would seem, to go somewhat to his head. What a shame. How sad. What about you and me? How would you and I use additional time if God gave it to us? How would we employ or make use of additional years if God did bequeath it and grant it to us? May I submit to you that unless some very strong dedication and repentance were made, we would use it the same way we've used what time we've already had. That's probably a safe statement. But yet, look at what that means in this case. If you and I used the next years the way we've used the past ones, is that a good thing? Are you and I faithfully serving God now? If so, then one might expect and hope that we'll continue with that urgency and that direction. But if we haven't been faithful in the past, perhaps the chances are we're not likely to be faithful in the future. At the very least, we could say it'll demand repentance. It'll demand a change. If there's anyone in the audience tonight for whom you need to make a change, you want the next years to be more glorious in service to God than the past ones have been, then you need to make a change. Changes don't happen automatically. They happen with determination. They happen with conviction. They happen with courage. It takes a lot of courage to walk down an aisle and say, I've been wrong. I want to confess this. I want to make it known to others. I have made mistakes. These are what they are, and I want your prayers. There ain't any of us that would say that's easy. What we would say is, though, that after doing it, how much better do you feel knowing God has forgiven you? How much better do you feel knowing the guilt of those sins is no more? How much better do you feel knowing now you can walk hand in hand with the Lord Jesus Christ again? even though that, again, may not be trivially easy. That's what the Bible teaches, isn't it? You can argue that the most challenging and difficult step in all the plan of salvation is not baptism. That's being immersed in the water. Someone does that to me, and as such, the operation of God takes place. Repentance is almost surely the most difficult because it takes the open admission on my part, what I have been and were doing is not right. None of us like to admit we're wrong. None of us like to admit that I've been mistaken. That just usually doesn't come easy. To openly and honestly say, I have sinned and I want to change. Hezekiah changed in the wrong direction. He went from good to bad. Tonight, if you'd like to go from bad or at least unfaithful to good, we could pray to God for you. If you're a wayward child of God, Jonathan has chosen this hymn of encouragement. It's an opportune, convenient time, and if you'd like to come, 
we would be honored to assist you, to pray to God for you and with you. May I say, if you've never become a Christian, though, you don't have an advocate with the Father yet. 1 John 2, verses 1 and following say, that's reserved for those that are members of the family, those that are, of course, in Christ. You can only accomplish that with baptism. If there's someone in the audience for whom that would be a need, believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. Let us learn from Hezekiah not to misuse the time we have, but to use it gloriously to the service of God. And tonight, if we could be of assistance to anybody, why don't you come? While together we stand and sing.